Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word Charles Spurgeon once said, If you profess to be a Christian, yet find full satisfaction in worldly pleasures and pursuits, your profession is false. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say, so that's why I wanted to start out with one of the giants of Christian teaching saying it. You may not find me all that impressive, and I wouldn't blame you. But everyone will at least hear what Spurgeon has to say. So with that opener in place, let me now put my two cents in. You can't be a Christian and belong to the world too. Though you may not realize it, by the way, especially if you're in the modern church world, this has always been how God sees things. Jesus once said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Now some smart aleck may say, well, Johnny was talking about mammon. Well, what do you think this world runs on? What do you think this world pursues? There's an old apropos Jewish saying that states something similar. We have not found that any man is fit for two tables. Better still is the statement, it is not proper for one man to have two governments. God is holy and the world isn't. They're enemies. There must be a choice between one or the other. You can't have both. You can't belong to two worlds. In God's kingdom, as in any kingdom actually, no double agents allowed. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve two governments. You can't sit at two tables. It's one or the other. Your earthly nature is going to want you to gravitate toward the earth, toward the world, toward the pleasures of the world. Your earthly nature wants you to sin. And your sin will never be allowed in God's presence. And that applies as much to you now that you've been saved, assuming you've been saved. Sin is no more allowed now that you've been saved than it was before you got saved. And listen, I think most 
clear thinking, reasonable people see the wisdom in that philosophy. If your friend told you that she let her abusive husband back in the, into the home because he said he was sorry, but now he's still beating her, what would your advice be? Kick the bum out and don't let him come back until he's abuse-free. Why would we think God should be any different? Let me ask you, would you respect a God that continues to take abuse from the, from the ones he bled and died for? Could you trust a God who turns his back on sin, honestly speaking? Do you think that a God who turns his back on his own justice could protect you against an evil world? Wouldn't you have the at least a little bit of doubt whether he'd stop some injustice against you if he allowed sin to happen, even if only rarely? Even if God had exceptions to injustice, don't you think at some point you'd be a victim? How could you honor a God like that? How could you trust a God like that? You can't. But our God, you can. God will not allow two worlds in one. He will not allow the world of sin into his world. Therefore, God wants you to change. If you're reasonable, if you're rational, you'd accept that. You'd understand that. If your focus is truly on God, if your love is truly for him, you'd accept that. I mean, if you robbed banks before you went to the cross, your bank robbing days should be over afterward. That much is clear. And by the way, according to Scripture, this is no small matter. Paul, yes, that Paul, the very same Paul that is the champion of grace, says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, listen to this. This is the apostle of grace. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and that is exactly the way it sounds, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, Paul's letters, like this letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, what we call the first letter to the Corinthians, were to Christians. He didn't write letters to the unsaved. Paul wrote letters to the church. These are people in the church of Corinth. These are people who have already 
given their lives to Christ. And you know what he says to them? Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. He's telling these Christians, be not deceived. Why are you telling us that, John? Because this message is not to the unsaved world, it's to the saved. And he would have never said it had there not been a need. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying there's no such thing as a Christian fornicator. There's no such thing as a Christian idolater. There's no such thing as a Christian adulterer, and there's no such thing as a Christian homosexual. Now, don't get mad at me. I didn't write this letter. Paul did. I happen to agree. Listen. If you keep those things up after your conversion, it just means your profession is false. Again, don't get mad at me. I'm just repeating what Spurgeon said. He brought that up. This isn't a condemnation message. This is a message to equip you, believe it or not. We'll get there. As difficult as some of those things may be, the idolatry, the adultery, the homosexuality, the covetousness, the extortioners, all of those things need to be set aside, there's no question. And as difficult as it is for some people to set them aside, they have to be set aside. Again, I say this must be serious because Paul can't seem to let it go, and he's the one known for preaching grace. Listen to this list, this time out of the book of Romans. Chapter 1, we're starting at verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men. Oh, here he goes again. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. 
being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, and again, so the point is here, these aren't ignorant heathens. These aren't people who don't know any better. These are people who know the judgment of God, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only to not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. But John, aren't we, aren't we liberated? Aren't we forgiven? Forgiveness does not imply permission. When you're liberated, when you're free, it means you are free from sin, not free to sin. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Jesus forgave her right then and there, didn't he? But what did he say after he forgave her? John 8, 10 and 11. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You want to know something funny about this verse? Somewhere in the early church, someone took this entire chapter out of, gospel, out of the Gospel of John. In some of the older manuscripts, this story is not to be found. You want to know why? Well, it relates to what we're speaking of today. According to Augustine, this passage was removed because someone thought this story would encourage women to act adulterously. Someone thought that this gives too much liberty to sin, and that's not the case at all. Jesus said, sin no more. People thought when women read this story, that they would assume that God thought it would be okay to commit adultery, but that's not what the story says. Jesus forgave and he advised. He forgave and then said, sin no more. This lovely little vignette from the life of Jesus demonstrates the gospel better than anything else, in my opinion. A known sinner ends up in the presence of Jesus, is forgiven, and then, and then admonished to set aside that which brought them to the Savior. Jesus made sure to forgive and advise. The first sermon Jesus ever preached started out with him saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I don't need to define that word. You know what it means. 
And it was the word that Jesus kicked off his ministry with. It wasn't forgiven. It wasn't save. It wasn't love. It was repent. Jesus came to save, but he can't do that unless you repent. Not convinced? Okay. How about the story of the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda? He too received a blessing from the Lord, this time in the form of a healing. But that healing also came with a warning. John 5, 14, Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now again, I repeat, this message isn't meant to make anyone feel bad. I'm not condemning anyone. I'm simply, at this point, laying out a very important concept. You are to be free of sin. Does that mean I'll go to hell? No. If I sin and I fail, will I lose my salvation? No. One summer evening, I was traveling on an interstate in New Jersey. You've heard of soccer moms. I was a volleyball dad. I was taking Samantha and one of her teammates to a training event just outside Newark. As we were going along, a particularly careless driver dangerously cut us off, and I got very angry. And I used, I used what is known around here as football words, and I said some other unkind things, and I began to behave a little rashly in traffic out of anger. Now, within a few moments, I felt ashamed of myself. I didn't resist that. I didn't justify that. I didn't try to push away my feelings of shame. I knew I had sinned. I knew being angry was a sin at that moment. I didn't resist that. My conscience convicted me over that incident, and I didn't resist it. I didn't say, well, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was born. I can't help it. The thought of my poor behavior bothered me for the rest of the evening. And I believe that as we grow closer to God, we become more sensitive toward what He has called us to become. And though we don't fear for our salvation, we regret our ungodly actions just the same. It happens to all of us. Why do we fail? That should be important to you, because I'm certain that you fail too. And the answer is not to ignore it and say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. That's not the answer. Those of us that belong to the clear-thinking, reasonable people crowd will say, 
something must be done. I don't want to react in frustration that way. I want to know how to fix that. I want to stop that. It stands in my way of a healthy relationship with God. It stands in my way to a fruitful relationship with God. Does it mean I'll go to hell? No, it does not mean that. If I care, to resist the worldly ways, if I care to be separated from the world, that means I've been saved, that my profession was true. To resist that causes problems for me and God. But the problem is, The problem that we all seem to miss is that we're no better able to avoid sin after being saved than we were before, and yet we know our lives must change. The morning after that unchristian-like outburst, I read the following. The blessed comforter is gentle, tender, and full of patience and love. Those are the words of the incomparable A.B. Simpson. And it's what Simpson wrote next that inspired this lesson. Quote, The heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells will always be characterized by gentleness, lowliness, quietness, meekness, and forbearance. The rude, sarcastic spirit, the brusque manner, the sharp retort, the unkind cut, all of these belong to the flesh and have nothing in common with the gentle teaching of the comforter. The Bible is clear. Sin is to be avoided, whether we go to hell for it or not. Sin will not be tolerated by God. But here comes some more bad news. Just as powerless as you were to help yourself before your salvation, you're that powerless afterwards. And I think that most of us know that. I came to that conclusion as I traveled through North Jersey that night. Try as I might, I just can't keep myself from sin. And yet I know what his word says. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. I can't react to situations like that the way the world does. And listen... You know as well as I do that our sins don't have to rise to 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1 level as we read earlier. We don't have to be murderers and adulterers and idolaters for 
sin to be present in our lives. In fact, after conversion, even when we commit what the world may consider a minor sin, we grieve because of it, if our profession is true. If your profession, if you don't agree with any of this, you should question your commitment to God. I've never heard you say anything like that, John. I know. The world is quickly changing. The world is forcing us to make a choice. Either you're with the world or you're against it. And if you're against it, admit it. I'm against the way the world sees things. I'm against this idea that you can go to church and be an adulterer and a idolater and a murderer and effeminate, etc. I'm against that. I'm against thinking it's okay to envy and to be angry and to be a cheater and to be a liar and think it's okay because we're free. And listen, I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else. I have as much failure in my life, in my own efforts, as anyone. So-called little sin or not, they're all sin, and try as we might, we just can't keep on the straight and narrow, as they say. And it's a terrible situation to find yourself in. If you love Jesus, you feel you're letting him down in your efforts to keep yourself from sin. In fact, failure in the face of post-conversion sin has caused many a believer to just give up and assume they're unsalvageable. Mistake piles on top of mistake, sin on top of sin. At some point, we may even raise our voices with Paul and exclaim, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The ancient world was a very grim place. It has been said that as punishment either for a crime or some other egregious slight against a cruel tyrant, a man may be sentenced to walk around with a dead body fastened to him. It was gruesome, to say the least. It's it's gruesome to even imagine. The offender was forced to spend all day and all night, sometimes even face-to-face, with a decomposing corpse. Now, yes, I know, there's some debate as to whether this is what Paul was speaking about, but if it is what he was speaking about, it's appropriate. To a sensitive sinner, to someone who's given their life to Christ, but feels burdened by their nature. A saved sinner daily stares directly into the eyes of his old, sinning, hell-bound self, and such a sight can be maddening and, frankly, difficult to push away. 
only someone with a deep sense of personal failure could have come up with such a metaphor. Paul, the great apostle, we can be sure, struggled himself against sin. Let's read it again. The emotion of it rings true to all of us who likewise battle self-doubt. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I'll say it again. Why do we think that now that we're saved, things are any different? Sin is sin, and we're still unable to lift ourselves out of it. Well, there is one thing that's different about you and I now, now that we're saved. But we have to realize it. Well, Paul reminds himself of something very important. Let's listen in. Romans 8, 5. Listen to this. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Listen, we're different now. We're no longer after the flesh, as Paul puts it. You and I have been saved. And the moment we gave our lives and faith to be a servant of God, we were changed from being after the flesh to of the Spirit. And then Paul, as he often does, goes on to expand and explain. For to be carnally minded is death. Romans 8, 6. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Paul, thank you very much for summing up what we said so far. Therefore, Galatians 5, 16, This I say, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This message is clear and consistent. Paul is saying that it isn't possible through our own effort to change ourselves. You can't in the flesh fight against the flesh. They're partners. A house divided, as Jesus said. But in the spirit, you can battle the flesh. If you're trying in your own efforts, herein referred to as the flesh, you cannot defeat the flesh. It is literally self-defeating. But if you walk in the Spirit, according to Paul, ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let's keep digging. The original letter to the Galatians used the word peri. Pateo, peripateo. John, why do we have to keep going back to the original language? Because, believe it or not, God did not write the King James. 
He wrote the letter to the Galatians, by Paul's hand, of course, in Greek. Purposely, I believe. I believe that the fullness of time referred to when God sent his only son. I believe that part of the fullness of time is that the Greek language was at that time the dominant language of international communication. Therefore, the Bible, the New Testament, I should say, was written in Greek, as were the Gospels, so that the widest communication level could be achieved. That's why the Roman roads were everywhere. That's why the fullness of time included the Roman roads everywhere. It made it easier to travel long distances. You could go by the Roman roads. I believe that several consequences came to me to allow the gospel to spread. Part of that was the fact that Greek was the dominant language of communication at the time. Therefore, we keep going back to the Greek so that we can better understand the fullness of the message. And on top of the fact that Greek was the dominant language, it is also one of the most expressive. You see, our finite minds struggle with trying to define God. We struggle with that. Our language capacity is limited. Well, for some reason, the Greek language is very expressive. It is far more expressive than many languages on the earth, certainly more than English, certainly more than Hebrew, as a matter of fact. I believe that that's part of it is that God waited until the language of expression, i.e. Greek, was dominant so that those that would be spreading the word could spread the word in Greek. Listen, the, the King James is a wonderful book, but it's a translation. And like most translations of any sort, some meaning is lost from one language to the next. Now, that's particularly true when we go from the Greek to the English, as I said. Greek is far more expressive than English. We have to use more words. We have to, use, we have to stretch our brain to understand the Greek. A lot of meaning can get left behind, and we need to go back and pick it up. Peripateo, peripateo is literally translated trample or walk around or about. Peripateo is used figuratively in the Greek for going through your life. Now, that's no surprise. Peripateo, remember, is translated into the English word walk. But in the Greek, it also means figuratively how we go through our lives. So this is about living our lives, the way we go about our daily activity. Walk ye in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul is saying the way you live your life, live it through the Spirit. So this isn't just about your activity, your, your job, how you treat your neighbor. This is referring to how you live your life. This is everything you do. This is how you walk through this life. Remember the opening scene of the movie Saturday Night Fever? 
the first words of that movie are actually lyrics to a BG song. And it goes something like this. Don't worry, I won't sing unless you want me to. I don't think you want me to. Well, you can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. You're welcome for getting that song stuck in your head. But the point is, you can know someone by observing how they go through life, how they carry themselves through their lives. Our, quote, walk is a reflection of who we are. That's why walking is a good metaphor for the way we live our lives. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 This is Paul's advice. Paul is speaking of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and he's referring to the manner of your life, how we walk, how we carry ourselves. Paul is saying, if you walk, if you live your life in the Spirit, then ye shall not fulfill, the original word means accomplish, execute, perform, the lusts of the flesh. If you're walking in the Spirit, then you will not, according to Paul, Fulfill the lust of the flesh. Will I fail? Sure. But you get up and keep walking. Will I get mad in traffic? Sure. But you get up, learn from it, and keep walking. Now this last part is extremely important to understand because it's extremely easy to misinterpret. And by this last part, I mean, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The problem here is the word lust. Now, when this word first arrived in the proto-Germanic language, it actually meant pleasure or desire of any sort. By the time it made its way into the English language about 700 years later, it increasingly meant sexual pleasure or sexual desire. Now, to be honest, I actually believe that Paul meant that sort of desire in Galatians 5, but he by no means meant that exclusively. You see, the original word that the King James translators replaced it with was epithumio, which means to set one's heart upon. It means to long for something, but it doesn't limit the object of the longing to simply sexual things. The problem here is the fact that the King James says the lust of the flesh, and that doesn't help us. You see, people will see that sort of thing and think, well, as long as I'm not promiscuous, I should be okay. And that's not what Paul had in mind. You see, the word that Paul used there originally is sarks. Now, although that can be translated appropriately to mean flesh or meat, as of the, you know, the outer portion of a man or an animal, it has a far wider use. Sarks is used in the New Testament, and especially here in Galatians 5, to mean that which related or was relatable to human nature. 
Again, we're talking about the world. You will not fulfill the desires of the world if you walk in the Spirit. It says you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, but Paul didn't just mean sexual immorality. Yes, that's a problem. Yes, that can get you into lots of trouble. Yes, sexual immorality is just as bad as any other sin. But don't ignore the others. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the world are anger and idolatry and adultery and murder and envy and anger and all of the other things that are on that list and other lists, lists that you're familiar with. Listen, you know the difference between good and bad. You know the difference. In God's word, there is no gray. We have grayed it out. We've changed the message. We've gotten really good at, yeah, but. We've gotten really good at that, you know, that kind of eye roll thing when someone's talking about the Bible, they, you know, that kind of, eh, well. We're good at that now. That's not the way God's word was written. Whatever's human in origin, and specifically the physical side of humanity is being spoken of here. Paul very often uses sarks as a contrast to pneuma, the word for spirit. Sarks and pneuma are opposites. Flesh or body and spirit are opposites. That's what Paul is doing here. He's referring to those two worlds. He mentioned walking in the Spirit in the first part of this verse, and then he contrasted it with the opposite. The sort of walk that's strictly human. The sort of walk that walks to the beat of the world. And yes, that includes sexual immorality, but it also includes other human failures. Again, I'll say anger and hatred and gossip and greed all of those are encompassed in this phrase, lusts of the flesh. Whenever we are concentrating on the pursuit of our own pleasure for its own sake, we are fulfilling the lusts of the flesh in all of its forms. When I got angry that lovely summer evening in traffic on the way to volleyball practice, I wasn't walking in the spirit and I knew it. And I didn't resist that. When the Spirit convicted me, when my conscience tapped me in my, on my shoulder and went, uh-uh, I didn't resist that. I didn't push it away. I wanted to. Frankly, I was embarrassed by myself. I wanted to think I was bold. I, I, I wanted to feel like I was protecting my daughter. I wasn't. I was protecting my ego, and I knew it. That's what's so hard to overcome. If we're trying to do this in our own human, fleshy, bodily strength, we're going to fail. And so Paul told us, you sensitive sinner, you're worried about your walk, well, walk ye in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Focus on the Spirit. Pursue a closer life with the Spirit, and those sorts of things, those fleshy things, won't have so much of a grip on us. 
I'll be able to be free of the anger and the hostility and the reactions to the ego bruising if my life, if my walk was more of an expression of the spirit. My life will take a different view. It will take on a different tack when I allow the Holy Spirit and I don't resist the Holy Spirit. I allow him to come through me. And I believe that people will notice. I'm certain of it. Not because I figured that out for myself, but because Paul continues in Galatians and says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's what the walk in the Spirit looks like. That's what happens. That's the result. That's the fruit. That's the outcome of walking in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That all sounds quite lovely. Tell me, is there anyone that thinks those things are repulsive? Anyone not want love, joy, and peace? Is there anyone who doesn't want to be more long-suffering? In other words, bear up under pressure? Not blow your stack? Don't you want to be more gentle? Do more good things? Have more faith? Be more humble? Be less temperamental? Well, when we conduct ourselves as the Spirit directs us, then this fruit is the outcome. If we resist the Spirit walk, then we will fulfill the lust. If we resist the conviction of the Spirit, if we resist the fruit coming out, then we will fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the walk in the Spirit that prevents us from doing what the flesh wants us to do. And just in case those Galatians and we ourselves need some clarification on what the lusts of the flesh look like. Again, Paul lays it all out in its ugliness. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, and by that he means they're apparent, they're obvious. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He was talking to Galatian Christians. People who had been saved. People who gave their lives to Christ. He had to remind them of what the works of the flesh are. He had to remind them what that looked like. There was some question. There were probably people in their churches saying, It's okay. You've been saved. You have liberty through Christ. Don't worry about things like 
adultery or fornication or uncleanness or lasciviousness or idolatry or witchcraft or hatred, etc. That's just you being you. You were born that way. Go with it. Now, if you think I'm being ludicrous, you're not paying attention to the way the church world is now bending. The church doesn't want you to walk in the Spirit anymore because it makes you look conservative. It makes you a hater. The church wants you to walk in the world. Get along with the world. Don't upset the world. Don't say things like, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Don't say those things. That hurts people's feelings. People can't help that. Again, I say, if you think I'm being ludicrous, you're not paying attention to the winds of change in the church. I'm trying very hard not to be specific for a very good reason, because I don't want you to think that one type of sin is the only problem. Paul says we are to walk in the Spirit if we want to have the loveliness of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the faith, the meekness, the temperance. Paul wants to remind us that that's what a life in the Spirit is all about. A life in the world looks like adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like. That's the contrast. Paul wants you to see the contrast. In fact, why don't we read the whole thing through as it was intended to be in the beginning? It was intended to point out the contrast between the walk with the world and the walk with the Spirit, the walk in the flesh and the walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. And I know you heard all this already. I want you to hear it all together. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye... Be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Remember, they're obvious. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Paul wanted to point out that there are two worlds. The world of the flesh and what it looks like, and the world of the spirit and what it looks like. You know, I've had enough of the ugliness. Let's hone in on the fruit of the Spirit. It's too lovely to let go by in closing. Let's hone in on verses 22 and 23, as a matter of fact. As already pointed out, the fruit of the Spirit is what it looks like when you're walking in the Spirit. And by the way, this is in the singular, the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits. These are a unity of walking through life. These are the ways someone is. This is the way someone is. Not the ways. The way someone is. It's in the singular. A wholeness. It's a a demeanor. A way of life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. It's a unity. Now, it's very important for you to see that. This is not the fruits, but fruit of the Spirit. This isn't some list to be checked off. Oh, yeah, today I was meek. Great. Tomorrow I'll I'll practice temperance. Let's see. Next week I'll do love and joy. Let's see. Then I probably should pull it together by Wednesday with peace and love. No. This is the way you handle yourself. Now, the works of the flesh, that was in the plural. Paul's a master writer. He's saying that when you have, when you're in the flesh, you have works. You have, you're bouncing all over the place. You have this, you have adultery, you have fornication. You don't, you don't have all, not everyone does everything. Not everyone is into witchcraft and variants, for example. All of those things alone can say that you are of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, that's the way you are. That's the way you carry yourself. That's how you're described. You're described with joy and love and peace. That's the kind of guy he is. He's long-suffering. He's gentle. She's meek. She has faith. It's simply the way someone is who's walking in the Spirit. Now, we don't have time to cover them all. Let's just go over a few. There are nine total, by the way, three groups of three. I don't think that's an accident. If you know anything about this ministry, you know we key in on the way numbers are used in the Bible. We're not going to get into that today. No time. Let's just, in the time we have left, let's cover the first group of three. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Let's take them in reverse. According to Jesus, the following is the purpose of the Spirit. When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. 
You know, I think that most people think of peace as dependent on their environment, you know, what's going on around them. You know, we'll say, well, you know, if this or that or the other thing were to happen, or if this or that or the other, th other thing didn't happen or go away, well, I'd be at peace. That's what, that's what would make me peaceful, is if those things didn't happen to me, or if this thing did happen to me. We think that peace is dependent on our circumstances, so we look to our circumstances for peace. Boy, if I had a million bucks, I'd have peace. You know, if I lived on that remote mountaintop, I'd be at peace. If my kids were better, I'd be a lot more peaceful. But is that really the way peace comes? I mean, there are a lot of wealthy people that have far more than a million bucks who never seem to be at peace. Just take a look at Hollywood if you want proof. Having money is no guarantee of any peace in your life. As a matter of fact, I agree with Christopher George Latour Wallace. You may know him as the notorious B.I.G. He said, more money, more problems. How true is that? Now, it's true that most of us probably would think, wow, if I was alone on that mountain, I mean, being alone appeals to us. We think that would make us peaceful. We figure it's all the other jerks around me that make me unpeaceful. If they weren't around, I'd be a lot more serene. But you know, most of those that do manage to extricate themselves from society eventually come to the conclusion that there's as much conflict coming from the inside as there is from the outside. And as for those loud, unruly kids, I believe the majority of empty nesters would admit to longing for the days of the chaos around the castle. You know, I think the truth is most of the cause of our unrest, the origin of our lack of peace, is uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen next, and that's what keeps us up at night, right? And let's face it, <laughs> Sometimes, even when we do know what's going to happen next, that too keeps us up at night. The Bible tells us there's but one true path to peace. When you allow the Spirit to do His job of leading you into all truth, then peace will follow as a part of that fruit as a piece of the fruit. When we let the Spirit convince us that Jesus is in charge and we're in His hands and that He loves us, and we make that knowledge sink down deep into our souls, then we find ourselves possessing peace that passeth understanding. 
peace that keeps our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Walking in the Spirit does that. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. What's next? Well, Paul says there's also joy. God said through David in Psalm 37 that if we delight ourselves in him, in God, he will give us the desires of our heart. When we walk in the Spirit, it gives us a glimpse into the kind of God we serve. We learn He's magnificent. We learn He's loving. We learn He's mighty, and on and on the Spirit of truth goes concerning Him. When we, by the work of the Spirit, see clearly this God we delight in, He becomes our desire. He becomes our source of joy. How can we help it? The perfect, the good, the mighty, the loving, the forgiving God is our God, our Father, as a matter of fact. It's the Spirit's job to convince us of that. That leads to joy. We can't help that. When we see his magnificence, when it stares us in the face, so to speak. You ever met anyone that said, ew, I hate starry skies? Or, why is everyone so in love with sunsets? Of course not. To see, though, listen to me, to see those things is to fall in love with them, is to desire them, is to find joy in them from the moment we first see them. We can't help that. They're incredibly beautiful. When you get the right picture of God, and that, again, is the job of the one you are walking in, the Spirit, once you see the truth He has led you in regarding your Savior, you're going to smile. You're going to find it beautiful. You will joy in it. And that, I'm going to tell you, that joy is going to show in your life. Your joy will become obvious. People will be able to see who you really are. One of my neighbors has a beautiful old apple tree in her yard. In the fall, when the apples are ready to pick, you can see them from a long way. You can see that apple tree and know it's an apple tree because hanging on it is fruit. And you can tell what kind of fruit it is because it looks like an apple. That tree is showing itself to be an apple tree when the fruit is hanging from it. And listen, the only time 
an apple tree is of any use is when it's productive. When an apple tree is not productive, it just gets in the way. It takes up space. It's taking resources from the environment until it produces fruit. And if it never produces fruit, it's useless. It helps no one. When you're walking in the Spirit, truly walking in the Spirit, the part of the fruit will be joy, and that joy will spread. You will make others joyful by your joy. They're going to see it. They won't have, they, it's, it would be impossible for them not to see your joy. True Holy Spirit joy shows. It's joy that stands apart. Now, by the way, let me just make sure you understand. I never said any of this was easy. It's available, but we still have the war going on. The war between the flesh and the spirit. They're enmity. They're, they're enemies. They're warring against each other. It's not going to be easy. The hardest thing in the world to do is to get out of the Spirit's way and let Him do His job. But once we do, there's peace, there's joy. And what's next? Remember, we're going in reverse order for that first group of three. Reverse to what? Paul put in Galatians 5.22, we said peace, we said joy. Next is love. Listen, God is love. That's what John tells us, and he ought to know. He spent enough time with Jesus, the very expression of God in human form. If God is love and the Holy Spirit is God, then guess what? A walk with the Spirit will naturally lead to an expression of the love of God. And if you don't have the love of God, then your profession is false. If the Holy Spirit is resident with us and we are taking time to get to know Him, then we will be seeing the world and reacting to the world the way He does. A person walking in the Spirit will walk in love. That's simply the only way you can if you're walking in the Spirit. Now, you could probably love others through your own effort, but listen to me, it won't be complete and it won't last. God's love is perfect and it's eternal and I want to share it more than anything else. And I know the only way, I know now, the only way to do that is to walk in the Spirit. We have to end this sometime. 
We certainly have not covered this all. We've only got to the first three expressions of the Spirit. I just wanted to give you a sampling of what that would be like. It's no good for me to tell you that you're walking the Spirit and then not tell you what that looks like. Paul told us what it looks like. We only had time to go over a few of them. The purpose of this lesson is to show you that real change comes only when we turn from our own efforts and surrender to Him. We will never be the person we want to be if we neglect this vital truth. Now that you belong to Christ, listen, I know this. Now that you're saved by grace, you want to please God. You love Him. I get that. But we're failures. We fail at this change every time. In our own efforts, we may win a few battles, but without the Spirit, we're going to lose the war. Our salvation will remain, of course, but we will not fully realize our potential. We will not fully experience the joy of a life totally committed to his cause. God knows your heart. He knows your desire to please him, and that's why he's provided his spirit. Listen, he wants you to reach your potential more than you do. He made you for something. And because of that, he decided to make himself responsible for giving you what you need. Turn to his spirit. Pray for his guidance. And you know what the result's going to be? Well, I'll tell you. The result will be love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now that's a list. And you're going to need all of those things to become a productive, fruit-bearing member of the family of God. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search Scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.